Thank you, and thank you, church, and thank you, Pastor Jeremy, for the invitation, the opportunity to be here with you, to worship together, to share the ministry of the Word together. I've been looking forward to this, praying about it, and excited at what the, the Lord is doing here at Grace Baptist Church. It is really the grace of God that Pastor Jeremy would ask one of his former professors to come and preach. I guess I wasn't the worst professor in the world. <laughs> and all I can tell you about Pastor Jeremy, I don't have any bad stories about him. He is just, so. my recollection, <laughs> make some up? Okay. Is this being recorded? I should ask first. <laughs> Jeremy was an excellent student. That's all I can tell you I remember of him. He was sharp back then, and I don't know that I did anything to sharpen him, but it was a joy to have him and others like him when I taught at the university. And we've maintained a friendship, and now we're pastors together, fellowshipping, and it's uh, just a blessing to know him and his family and now his flock. And it's a great honor to be able to stand before you this morning. My wife, Chris, is with me, and I'm thankful for her fellowship and her support, and I hope you get to meet us, and we'd like to meet you right after the service. This morning in our first hour, we looked at some principles God has for us to work. And I quoted a Christian by the name of Eric Liddell, Olympic runner, who is said to have said, in answer to why he was spending so much of his time in life to being an Olympic runner, said, I believe God has made me for a purpose, and he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And we looked this morning that God has created all of us and gifted and talented all of us in different ways. There's no such thing as a talentless individual, much less a talentless, ungifted Christian. This is not possible. We all have a talent, a gift that God has enabled us to have and to use for his pleasure. And doesn't it feel good and rewarding and fulfilling when you know you are doing what God has called you and gifted you to do for him? And work is not the highest calling. What we are now doing transcends what we'll be doing on the job this week, as good as that will be. We are now called to worship. And we were created to worship. I mean, that's what the image of God means in Genesis chapter 1, when God made man and woman. He made worshipful creatures who could know him, be on the same level, connect with him, talk to him and listen to him, walk with him, have hearts knit together. And what happened in the Garden of Eden and was interrupted, distracted by Genesis 3 sin, God in his grace now this morning is going to be restoring and helping us to do as we worship him in spirit and in truth. And to do that, would you join with me in Romans chapter 8 this morning? The book of Paul's letter to the Romans, the 8th chapter. And I would like to talk to you about assurance and security this morning. Assurance and security. Are you secure this morning, friend? Are you secure? And are you sure you're secure? Assurance and security, they're related concepts, but they're not identical. You can have one without the other. You can have assurance without security. You can have security without assurance. Somewhere on a frozen lake in Wisconsin, if not today, sometime soon, somebody's going to drive that truck out onto the ice, and they're sure, they're sure 
they're secure. And then tomorrow the tow truck will come to try and pull that pickup truck out of the lake. Their assurance was false. They didn't have the security they thought. And then it's possible some people are tippy-toeing, real reluctant to get out on that lake today. It's 12 inches thick, but that 120-pound lady is just a little <laughs> nervous that it might not hold her up. There's security with the lack of assurance or certainty of it. So we're going to see this morning, I think, in the passage of Scripture God has laid on my heart, how God has a desire for each one of us to be safe and secure, to have security and really have assurance of it. And we're not talking security on the level of job security or health security or financial security or certainly not social security, at least the government system, but spiritual soul security. That part of you, dear friend, that is going to live forever and ever and ever. And are you secure in your soul? And are you sure? I mean 100% sure. In the midst of a fallen, broken world where life can be so crazy, unpredictable, dangerous, and insecure, how can we ever have our hearts and minds kept in sanity and preserved with joy and peace, love for life, confidence in our great God, how in the world can we have security and surety in such a broken world? Well, Paul gives us the answer. In Romans chapter 8, rich chapter, some have said it's perhaps the peak of the cathedral of all revelation when you get to Romans 8. It would probably be my favorite chapter of Scripture. And with our limited time, we can't obviously look at it all. So I'm going to jump down to verse 31. If you join me there, and we'll read the remainder of the chapter, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Shall we pray? Father, as we open your word, written, inspired, preserved by your spirit, we need your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. May he take the words off the page and write them on our heart. May he do that deep soul work of opening our eyes where we are blinded, helping us to see what we need to see but haven't yet seen about you 
about ourselves, about life. Lord, would you convict where we need conviction? Would you encourage the soul that is down and needs a spiritual pick-me-up? Would you comfort the hurting? Would you strengthen the weak? Lord, would you draw the lost soul or the one who has questions about their soul, would you draw them to yourself at the cross? Meet them there, Lord, showing them their sin, but also your grace, where they can find forgiveness full and free, life eternal and abundant through personal faith and a personal Savior. And his name is Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. What shall we then say to these things? These things would be broad enough to encompass all of Scripture, all of the wonderful things that God has revealed in His Word. But perhaps Paul has just in this context, meaning these things that I have given you to this point in the book of Romans. Romans, real quick overview. Chapter 1 through 3, Paul shows us there is none righteous, no, not one. None of us has the righteousness that God requires and demands, being a holy, righteous God. We are all in desperate spiritual need. But then he turns to grace. In Romans 3, 4, and 5, he says, What God demands, God requires. His holiness requires righteousness. His grace provides righteousness. He gives us in Christ what we need. And it's only by faith alone, not works, he's very strong on that, faith not works will bring that righteousness to your account before a holy God. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, I'm sorry, in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he will show us what that righteousness looks like when it's lived out in the life of a believer. The righteousness God puts on our account, Romans 3, 4, and 5, is now put into our heart and worked out of our heart in Romans 6, 7, and 8 in sanctification. And that's where we're at here in Romans 8. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, he shows us our standing in Christ and the Holy Spirit now indwelling us is working out the righteousness that the law called for but man could never produce by law keeping because we can't keep the law perfectly. But Christ through his Spirit within can do that. Romans 8, verses, uh, oh, starting verse 17, 25, we're going to see Paul expound on the suffering in this corrupt world. We're living a righteous life in an unrighteous world. And sometimes it's hard, and it hurts. And there's groanings, and there's sufferings. But nothing that's worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. Romans 8, verse 18. Romans 8, 26 through 30, Paul has shown us this great security that is ours in Christ. The Spirit's praying for us. Jesus is interceding for us. If you're justified, you are as good as glorified, verse 30 tells us. So we end up as certain and as sure of being glorified as we are certain and sure we are justified, which we are by faith in Christ. So what should we say to these things? What should be our response to all of these wonderful truths of salvation in Romans and in the whole Word of God? Well, Paul answers a question with a question, something your English teacher probably told you not to do in composition class. 
But Paul does it because it's the Holy Spirit telling him to do it. It's okay here. Paul says, what shall we say to these things? And here's his answer. If God be for us. Let's just stop there. This is a if that is not an uncertainty if. This is a conditional word if, but in the construction of the original, it assumes the reality of what it is asking. So you could translate that rather than if, you could understand it to be since. Since God be for us. It's the same construction as in Matthew 4 when the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And he says, if you be the son of God, turn these stones into bread. The devil knows he's the son of God. He was saying, since you are the son of God, why don't you use your divine power and feed yourself? Or the same in Colossians 3 when Paul says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affections on things above. There's no question if Christians are in that condition. Paul is saying, since you are a heavenly people, put your heart and mind with affections and thought on that heavenly home. So Paul is saying here, since God is for us. You just dwell on that for a while, friend. Would you just make that statement of assurance something that you meditate on over and over? Say it to yourself. Think it to yourself. Preach to yourself over and over, especially on those hard days where it seems everything is against you, everyone is against you, nothing's going right. You have to preach this truth to yourself. God is for us. God is for me. Sing it to yourself. What a wonderful gift of music, the way God has constructed us. Music, it's memorable. And it appeals to and it touches us at an emotional level. And if you package that music with words that contain theological truth, it is the best way to preach to your soul. Sing old hymns like, Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. Or more recent songs, perhaps, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me to depart. And when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What shall we say to these things? God is for us. Now, what does that really mean? I would like to show you from the words of Paul, four comforting implications that come out of that statement. What does that mean? What does that look like in your daily life? If you can say, as the scripture says, God is for you, what does that mean in real terms? Well, number one, Paul says in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Implication number one, two words, no opposition. If you're taking notes or you want to write in the margin of your Bible, that's what Paul is saying here. If God is for us, no opposition. Does that mean that Christians will never face criticism? 
or attacks or persecution? Well, the man writing this knew better than that. Read the book of Acts and Paul had people opposing him, religious persecution, governmental persecution, his own brethren on the social and familial level. There's opposition galore. What Paul is meaning here, what the Holy Spirit is saying, if God is for you, what does it matter who else is against you? Who cares who's against you on the human level if the God of the universe is on your side and is for you? My grandchild has a problem with a bully in the neighborhood at the playground. All she'd have to do is walk down there one day with her daddy right behind her in his policeman uniform with his badge and his service revolver at his side, and I'm guaranteeing you that bully is going to think twice. And she's not going to have a care in the world on who's against her because she knows who's for her. You're on an aircraft carrier, and you hear this little sound, and you look way down at water level, and here's some Islamic terrorist in a kayak ramming your aircraft carrier. Are you going to lose sleep? Are you going to call in for air support? Are you going to go into a panic attack because a kayak is bumping your aircraft carrier? See, Paul is saying, if you know who's for you, you don't have to spend a lot of time worrying about who's against you. So maybe for some of us, the lesson here, the first implication, no opposition, is trust God's protection for your life, Christian. Stop focusing on who's against you and focus on who is for you. He is the supreme creator and maintainer of the universe. He is a great sovereign God, almighty God, El Shaddai, the mighty conqueror, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And if you are in Christ as a child of God, this God is for you. Who can be against us? Implication number two. If God is for us, then number one, who can be against us? There's no opposition that really needs to be concerned or feared. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice the questions, how Paul is communicating through questions. He does this 88 times in the book of Romans. A lot of questions for those who are teachers, parents, counselors. Questions are a great way to teach, to get information sometimes, but many times they're rhetorical questions just to get our brains engaged and seeing the obvious. When it's in a question, it, it just jumps out like, duh, why didn't I see that or why am I not realizing that? So Paul says, think this one through. If God is for us, and here's my second point in the outline, there's no limitation. No limitation. He spared not his own son, his very best he gave you? Does that not mean logically then he will give you any lesser thing that you need in your life? Here's Paul's logical argument from greater to lesser. Calvary's sacrifice proves God is willing to give you anything and everything. And he started out by giving you the very best, his son. And if you've received that gift of eternal life through faith in Christ, then that is not the only gift you receive from God. Paul says he will graciously give us all things. And we'll qualify that with Scripture, all things that you need. 
all things that God knows that you and I need. All things that he plans and purposes for us. All things that will bring him glory in our life. All things. Now, God can limit it according to his will and plan and glory, but don't you and I limit it. Well, I know God can save my soul, but I don't know how he's going to meet this need in my life. This bill, I'll never get it paid off. School debt, mortgage, we'll probably lose the house. I don't know how. We'll do it. Getting our kids through school, yet alone college one day. Oh, I'm not a rich man. I just don't see how that's going to happen. Our church, boy, I don't know how we'll keep our budget. How will we ever, I don't know what you're planning to do, take on more missionaries, build our own facility. Oh, just unthinkable how that could ever happen. Well, you need to get your mind on God is for us. And if that's true, he who spared not his own son will graciously, that's freely, give you all things that you need. Could you imagine a generous benefactor telling you that he wants to send your family on a vacation that you could never afford, you've never had, but you really need. So he wants to send you and the kids, the whole family. He's going to fly you down to Disney, takes care of the airfare, has you picked up at the airport by the Disney limo, takes you to this beautiful Disney palatial resort where it's all on him. He's got that covered. Tickets to any one of the Disney parks that you want to take the kiddies to for that week. And then he'll return you home. And you get down there, and when you get to the Disney World Park, and you're having the time of your life, and the kids start to get a little hungry, you need a little break, your host says, well, I'm not buying you the ice cream cone. You've got to take care of that yourself. I'm not made out of money, you know. What do you think I am? You think money grows on trees? And all of a sudden, you have to come up with a dollar, or maybe it's five dollars, for an ice cream cone. He covers everything but that little ice cream cone. Or the doctor agrees to do your life-saving surgery that you could never afford, and your insurance plan won't cover but the doctor says, I'll do it. I want to help you. And so he does this long, lengthy, difficult, life-saving surgery for you. And when you come out in the recovery room, you find out you're supposed to bring your own Band-Aids with you. And you did, honey, go home. Get me some Band-Aids. They won't give me the Band-Aids. I mean, they'll do the surgery. They'll do everything else. But the Band-Aid? Come on. Doesn't make sense, does it, logically, humanly? So why do we doubt God's provision for anything in our life this side of Calvary. Folks, the greatest thing God ever could do for us, the greatest need you ever had was your sin need. You can't pay that debt ever. It will take eternity for some sinners who reject God's payment to pay it themselves. They will never fully satisfy the offense of their sin against an eternal, infinite God. That's why one of the reasons we know Hell and judgment is eternal. It will take that long to pay the debt off. So here's Jesus coming to the cross, the gift of the Father's love, Jesus paying the debt he didn't know for sinners who could never pay that back. If he'll do that, I can trust his provision for the daily needs in my life, today and tomorrow, whatever I'll need next year if Jesus hasn't returned. No limitation to the grace of a God who's for us. If God's for us, that means there's no opposition, 
There's no limitation. Will you look with me at verse 33 for what else that means? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's just stop there and we'll label this third point, no condemnation. Because that's what Paul is saying. He's been saying that since the top part of the chapter. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul's going back to that. He's going to hammer this home so that we are sure, we are secure before God when it comes to this issue of condemnation. And he does this with two questions. Verse 33 and 34. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And verse 34, who is to condemn? We can distinguish those questions. They're parallel, they're similar, but they are different. Laying a charge would be the first step in the legal process. We would probably call that being indicted, being charged, right? An accusation is brought about you. And then after the trial, the hearing, and justice is played out, then there is the condemnation. The verdict of guilt is declared. Well, Paul says, can you even think of anyone standing in the presence of a holy God and bringing some accusation or indictment or charge against you, the child of God? How can that be? Because the God that the charge is coming to has already said, you're not guilty. He justifies, verse 33. That means to declare not guilty. God, the judge, says not guilty. Who's going to come into this courtroom and say, judge, this person is guilty of, he's failed here, she's off here, doesn't come through on this, has messed up here. Look at the, how wrong they are. You wouldn't want to say that to the judge who had just declared that same person with the verdict, not guilty, justified. And certainly to condemn to say that person should be penalized, punished, should be separated, should be dealt with for their guilt, condemn them. You're going to say that to the judge and to his right-hand man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, who has already died for that one, paying for their penalty, who rose from the dead to verify the payment was accepted and acceptable, who not only rose from the dead, but ascended into the heavens at the right hand of the majesty of that holy God on his throne. And not only is there, but what is he doing there? He is interceding for that person who is being condemned. It's unthinkable. It can't happen. There is no condemnation. Now, to be sure, condemnation is a problem. We all start out, that's our big problem in life. If you want to flip back to chapter 3 of Romans, Paul made this statement in that opening section, showing that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. In Romans 3, 19, the apostle says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law condemns us all. The law shows us that we all are standing before a holy God, unrighteous. 
unholy, condemnable. Chapter 5, verse 18 of Romans. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that would have been Adam's sin that brought the whole race into sinfulness and condemnation, so now one act of righteousness, which would be Calvary, Jesus' cross work, leads to justification and life for all men. All who will trust him can have that condemnation replaced with justification. Jesus warned us and comforts us in John 3:18. He that believes in the Son shall not be condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he believes not in the name of the Son of God. So folks, we sit here today, every one of us, in one of two conditions, condemned or not condemned. In Christ, by faith, trusting Him alone as our Savior, or not in Christ, maybe in church, maybe in a moral lifestyle, maybe in religion, maybe with a lot of good things to your resume, but not in Christ. Jesus said, you're condemned already. The judge has already pronounced the verdict for anybody who doesn't trust his son. There's no in-between. Condemned or not condemned. So how thankful we are when we come to Romans 8. And by virtue of being in Christ by faith, knowing God is for us, we can rest easy, we can have peace, and know that the justification of the believer by Jesus' cross work, his resurrection, his ascension and intercession for heaven, assures us that we are legally forever accepted and out of the realm of condemnation. Now there's an accuser of the brethren. He knows this, but he's not going to respond in faith or obedience to that, so he will accuse the brethren. Let him accuse. I mean, don't fear the devil, his accusation, or maybe the devil's crowd that can point a finger of accusation at the believer. Um, I remember that portion of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, where he runs into Apollyon, who's the embodiment, the picture of Satan. And before the prince, Apollyon is bringing all these charges and criticisms and accusations against Christian. And when he's all done, Christian just says this. All this is true and more. I like that. The devil can accuse me of a lot of things, and he doesn't have to lie. He can accuse me of a lot of my failures and faults and weaknesses and sins, and he's not lying. And he could say even more than what he knows. But I serve a merciful prince who forgives me, said Christian. So the accusations can rise, and they can even be true at times. But where sin abounds, grace more abounds. And by coming to Christ with that sin and acknowledging it in repentance and trusting the forgiveness of Christ, who takes away the penalty, the guilt, but who will constantly also will cleanse me from the dirtiness, will empower me to overcome the temptation of that sin, I can rejoice. God is for me, no condemnation. So maybe there's one of us this morning who just needs to soak in at Calvary this wonderful truth. Trust the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for you, friend. Stop beating yourself up with self-condemnation 
or letting the accusations of others put you in a place of guilt. If there is any legitimate guilt, if there is conviction of sin, well then run to the cross and your Savior's there ready with his blood to constantly forgive us and cleanse us. But outside of that kind of guilt, there is no condemnation. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If God be for us, there's no opposition that we need to fear or dread. If God be for us, there's no limitation to what he can provide and take care of in our lives. If God be for us, there's no condemnation. And if God be for us, Paul will close this chapter with this lengthy excursus on no separation. No separation. He asks in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's a fair question. For some in this room, in this world, there may be the thought, well, yes, he's for me. He loves me today. But how long will that last? How long will it go on? Because there may be some here that we know who have had loving relationships before until that spouse took off or a parent abandoned a child or a child ran away from the loving parents that bore them and raised them and they're gone. Or your best friend, you thought was your best friend, turned on you, stabbed you in the back, so yeah, you know, loving relationships can be here today and gone tomorrow. So what about this one? How long? What will it take to end this and bring separation from the God who's for me? Oh, please, let Paul answer your maybe lack of assurance or your questions or your doubts with authority here. He says in verse 35, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Here's Paul's personal list. Seven life experiences. Can any of these take you out of the realm of God's love and turn him against you or you against him? And Paul is not theoretical here. He's not saying, well, hypothetically, could this, or maybe could this, or if this ever possibly happened... This is not theoretical for Paul. This is experiential. You read the life and times of the apostle in the book of Acts, and you will find every one of these seven things on the list. He was there. He did that. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Paul say, yeah, I've been there, done that. Didn't affect God's love for me or my love for God. He was there with me through that. No separation. Then Paul says, let me add maybe a little more authority than just my life experience. Verse 36, he quotes from the Psalms. Psalm 44, verse 22 to be exact. Paul says, let me tell you from history what somebody said a thousand years ago, a thousand years before Christ, a psalmist, a believer, with a hurting heart, with hard circumstances, where it seemed like Will I make it another day? He wrote what we read in verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Boy, isn't that encouraging? Give that to your brother or sister when they're going through a hard day. Boy, let me tell you, we're sheep being slaughtered. 
Oh, thanks. Why would Paul quote that? Why would the Holy Spirit put that Old Testament text in here? Well, I think because it was written and experienced a thousand years earlier, the takeaway is it's nothing new. We're not the first group, the first generation of Christians to be attacked, to be running for our lives at times, to be hunted, to be hurt. But here we are. Life goes on. The Lord goes on. The faith lives on. Try as they may, through the centuries, they've been coming at us, and we're still here because God is for us. Then Paul adds another list, verses 38 and 39. His comprehensive list. I think his personal list in verse 35 was... It's not exhaustive. It was selective of some of maybe the top trials of his life and the personal things that really touched him. But obviously there's other things than what he put in his list. So if we were writing our list today, we might add to verse 35. Perhaps you would put on your list cancer, false imprisonment, paralysis, Broken engagement, loss of employment, financial ruin, house fire, drunk driver. Put whatever you want on your list and it would just fit with Paul. Say nothing that we could list could ever bring that separation. And to seal the deal, Paul says, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, verses 38 and 39, Let's make it real big, comprehensive. Death nor life. That's pretty comprehensive. Angels. All right, now we're going to the unseen, invisible realm where there's all these wonderful spirit beings we can't see. Some of them are holy, some of them are unholy, but it doesn't matter. Good or bad angels, not even angels. Rulers and powers. Those could be a reference to some of the angelic authorities that we don't see. Or it could be a reference to some of the human rulers and powers that we do see. It doesn't matter. Put them in the basket. Things present that you are going through today or things to come. You can't see what's down the road of life. Next year at this time, you could be looking back on today and say, boy, I wish I could go back. I thought it was hard in 2018. Boy, I didn't know what was coming down the road in 2019. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But... In the usual cycle of life, we'll have some great times where God allows us prosperity and health and much blessing. That's just preparing us for the next trial that he may be planning for our lives. But it doesn't matter. Things to come that you can't even see or imagine. Verse 39, height nor depth, the highest heaven, the lowest of hell, nor anything else. Here's the miscellaneous that catches all that hasn't been listed before. Anything else in all of creation, none of this will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whatever's going to happen this year, whatever's going to happen in the government, the economy, with Korea or Iran, what's ever going to happen at your workforce, they downsize, they move to Mexico, Whatever's going to happen to your health, your kids, whatever's going to happen anywhere in this universe. I can promise you, based on Romans 8, if you are a believer, a year from now, a hundred years from now, a million years from now, you are going to be just as safe and secure 
as you ever have been, ever will be. Nothing will change that. If this is true, will you please join me at the very last of the chapter, the last five or six words. This is all true in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we say that together, just that phrase? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Not in Grace Baptist Church, as glad as I am to be here with you. Not in my family, which maybe has been a Christian family for three, four, five generations with even a preacher or two in the family tree. It has to be true for you that you are in, I mean, not close to, not following, not kind of close, but in, that's really close, in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that only happens. Jesus is your Christ, Messiah, Savior. He is your Lord, your Master, your Ruler. When you bow the knee at the cross and you realize what's going on at that cross is not for the guys on death row. It's not for the criminals and the perverts of this world and for the atheists and all the antichrist people. It's for me he died. It's for me that that death was necessary. There's no other way for this sinner to come into the presence of a holy God. And I see that, and I believe that, and I am convinced in my heart that that is gospel truth, and I respond by bowing the knee, admitting my sin, accepting the payment of the Savior by faith. Have you done that, really done that? Are you sure? If you're sure of that, you can be sure of everything else. God is for you if you're sure of your faith in Christ. And if God is for us, there's no opposition. There's no limitation. There's no condemnation, and praise God, there is no separation. All God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who recorded this wonderful chapter for us and who even this morning is writing it on our hearts. I pray, Lord, deep, deep, indelibly etched on our soul be the truth. God is for us. Whatever transpires this week, whatever you have planned and permitted in your providence, of all the things we don't know, this one thing we do know, we never need to fear condemnation or separation. We never need to fear any opposition that is really meaningful. And we never need to wonder if there is a limitation on your grace and love for our lives. Father, would you increase our faith would you bring faith to the heart of anyone in this room who hasn't yet really, truly, genuinely turned to Christ in saving faith? May today be their spiritual birthday. And we will thank you for your grace and goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.